Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel. I edit the CoinWorld podcast and I'm here to let you know about another fun and free product we offer through CoinWorld, our email newsletters. With our newsletters, you can pick from 10 options like US coins, world coins, or paper money to tailor the high quality content you receive. Pick the topics that interest you most or choose them all and get the latest from CoinWorld delivered straight to your inbox. Signing up is free and easy to do. I've put a link in the show notes for you, so just click there, Choose your content, and your email newsletters will be on the way shortly. Click on that link today and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome back to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. And we are excited today that we get to share our discussion with Dan Carr with you. Now, Dan is an ever-industrious, always interesting, and sometimes controversial figure in the numismatic space because he has his own press, and he gets to design all sorts of cool items that uh, sometimes veer into territory that some people don't exactly like. We're going to get into all of that in our discussion with him later in the episode. But before we do, we just like to remind you that your continued listening and subscription to the podcast help us continue making the show and doing what we do. So if you found this episode interesting or informative, if you've enjoyed any of our previous content, please remember to keep on listening every week and subscribe. Now, Jeff mentioned our interview with Dan Carr, who has his own private press and has designed a whole bunch of coins. I think we actually briefly mentioned him in our COVID collectibles episode. He's designed a couple, at least one piece, you know, making allusions to the COVID crisis and his perception of the inefficiency of the government response, basically saying that he thought, though, $1,200 stimulus checks weren't sufficient. So private mints and private presses enable people to produce things that governments might not be interested in or want necessarily. So what are some private mint pieces that you collect or that you've written about? So actually to elaborate on that further, we just mentioned Dan Carr in the interview with Jeff Shevlin talking about so-called dollars because they've collaborated on several projects. Private presses, private mints, the United States has a history, a long history of private enterprise stepping in to fill the gap when the federal authorities couldn't or wouldn't. I mean, you think about some of the Carolina gold pieces and Georgia gold pieces, the Becklers and others, you think about out in Colorado, which we echo in, in the interview with Dan, some of the private mentors there and in California and the gold mines, but they don't exist just to fill a space for specie or circulation items. As we've discussed on the podcast way back at the beginning, when you and I sat down with Ken Shaner of the Osborne Company, Osborne Mint out of Cincinnati, which dates back to before the time of uh, Abraham Lincoln's presidency, the mint is contracted to make pieces, can't call them coins because they're, unless they have a, a legal authority behind them of a, of a federal entity. But, you know, Osborne did Civil War tokens, for instance, and they did coal script for companies that wanted to have the closed. Uh, money systems in the mining stores. And the uh, tokens for the Office of Price Administration during the Second World War. Correct. And so there's that that sort of realm of things. Osborne has done parking tokens. You think about, you know, nowadays when I go 
to the big city, go to Columbus or go to St. Louis to visit family or whatever, there's places I go and I know that I'm going to have to use a uh, parking meter, but it's all credit card now. Well, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, you needed a token in some cases, uh, street car tokens back in the day when there were trolleys, all of these things, car washes, even here in Sydney, Ohio, where Coin World is based, we have a car wash and you can buy car wash tokens. Well, those things have to be made and the press is how you make them. You just, it's just a metal bashing machine as somebody at the Royal Mint. So elegantly <laughs> said to me 10, 12 years ago, you know, these are functionally just machines that bash metal together. Now, you know, you imprint the design, you add a value, whether that's a token value or a, a meaning, a value in meaning from a design. There's private presses that are employed to do commemorative medals. You think about all the challenge coins that appear in a uh, often or generally in a military context, but that has been shifted toward first responders and and uh, even local governments have taken to ordering challenge coins to give to citizens that you know they think have done a, a good deed or whatever. So all of those things have to be made somewhere. Well, where are they made? You know, here in the U.S., Osborne is a big one. You have Medallic Art Company dominated or certainly was a key player in the industry for decades in New York City, then Connecticut, and they bounced around elsewhere. They've had different corporate homes in the last decade, Dayton, Nevada, and I, I can't, you know, they I think they merged with Northwest Territorial Mint, Sunshine Mint. There's there's a whole array of this, and one could spend hours digging into that history. And the relationship between private and government mints is often not as clear as many observers would think. You think, well, private mints take private contracts or strike their own material and governments handle um, you know, official coinages issued by different states or different countries. But that's not always the case. I mean, the Franklin Mint was a large and very prominent private mint in the United States, and it struck coins for Panama in the 1970s, for example. So the Heaton Mint, which is in Birmingham, England, struck coins for a whole bunch of different countries. They took international contracts for, for decades and decades. So, so oftentimes, private mints not only can produce coinage or other material to help facilitate transactions on a sort of an unofficial basis or for one particular government agency like the OPA tokens, but they can actually strike coins just for use in other nations too. They can take, or, or even in within their own nation, they can be contracted by the government. So sure. that private public divide is not as stark as some people might initially think. Oftentimes, I mean, I can think back, the U.S. Mint, as you know, and hopefully the listeners would know because we've talked about it before, the U.S. Mint has struck coins for other countries. Now, there have been instances where companies here in the U.S. have been contracted to create dyes to strike test coinage patterns and so forth for other countries as well. Gorham, I think, was a big one that was involved in that. Some of these pattern pieces have, you know, I think there's a lot of them in, in the Chinese series, but uh, and nevertheless, they, they do exist. The Richard Lesner, I think, Lesner collection that CNG sold like five years ago had several examples I remember writing about this idea that sometimes the, the government mints are too busy, and so they have to contract with the private company to meet the certain standards. And you mentioned that the Heaton Mint is a great example. The Heaton Mint st stepped in and filled the gap when the Royal Mint could not in the United Kingdom for decades, striking coins for all sorts of British Commonwealth countries, Britain itself. And the colonies before decolonization. Yes. There are a number of British colonial issues that were struck at Heaton, even some, even some Canadian issues after Canada became independent. 
I was going to say, you know, there's some Canadian large scents that are, you know, that have that H mint mark for Heaton. I have quite a few and I'm sure you have some as well, Jeff. Yes. So the Heaton mint in Birmingham, Birmingham, of course, is uh, in England, the, the center of sort of the industrial revolution, thanks to Bolton and Watt. And uh, interestingly, Bolton and Watt are celebrated on, I believe it's the 50 pound note, which is the highest note in circulation in the United Kingdom today. And that is seen on the reverse of the note. The queen, of course, is on the obverse, or the face, I should say, face and back, when we're talking notes. You know, it shows some of their efforts. Birmingham was a, a button-making center, and, of course, anything that could be struck out of metal using dyes and so forth, including the coinage. And there's a great book by Richard Doty. The name escapes me. I apologize. Didn't think we were going to veer this way, but it's, you know, several hundred pages and it explores the history of Bolton and Watt and the Birmingham and the heat and mint and all that. So, you know, there's a lot of ground one could cover when talking about private mints. You mentioned Franklin Mint. Not only did they strike coins for Panama, but Barbados and many you know, sort of island countries. This was all collector stuff generally, especially in the 70s, which was really the zenith of the uh, Franklin Mint before. One of the things that, that hurt them was, of course, the balloon and crash of the precious metals prices in 79 and 80 with silver going up to astronomical sums. It hit $50 an ounce for the first time in history, didn't it? Yes. Yes. And $50 an ounce in, in 1979 would be a lot of money today. So that was a big part of it. But also 60 Minutes covered the Franklin Mint with a very critical eye in uh, a show around that time. So that was there were several factors at play. Those two, I think, are among the most important to note. But they persisted. They did a lot of um, base metal stuff in the 80s, did some marketing of coin sets and banknote sets and other things, and existed in some form until relatively recently, uh, maybe in the last 10 years. The name may still be out there, but they're certainly, from a functional standpoint of having presses where they're minting stuff, I think that's been many years since they've done that. So the world of private mints, you could cover a lot of ground. And the flexibility afforded to private mints by virtue of not being controlled by a legislative body, that flexibility allows them in some cases, to experiment with emergent currencies. And in our interview with Ken Shaner, we talked briefly about this. And incidentally, our interview with Ken Shaner is the first interview that Jeff and I ever did for the podcast. So that's it's an interesting little milestone for us that has to do with private mints. It was uh, the third show, I believe. It was the third but was show, the but our interview. first interview. Yeah. yeah, we recorded it as our very first recorded interview. But as Jeff said, yeah, we didn't get it until the, uh, the third episode. So, But in that interview, we, we talked briefly about this. And it's a topic that I'd love to revisit at a future date. Private mints, one of the many types of contracts that they take, sometimes involve cryptocurrencies. Ken Shaner talked about how the Osborne Mint had actually produced round coins or tokens, metals, whatever term best describes something that is used to um, access a cryptocurrency wallet. But essentially, a number of private mints have actually struck these tokens with either a barcode, with some other technological interface that if you scan it, can actually access virtual wallets, whether it's full of just dollars like a bank account or whether it's a Bitcoin wallet or whether it's for some other repository of cryptocurrencies. 
they have created a physical token that can be used to access that. So not only do private mints often take government contracts or take private contracts, they sometimes take contracts to produce physical embodiments of currencies that are generally fully digital. So so private mints have the latitude to experiment with forms of currency that conventional mints often can't because they're beholden to uh, a legislature or some other uh, form of government. So in that sense, private mints, I think, will always have a space in sort of the currency landscape. And They'll continue to be relevant into the future, even as cash use declines. There are non-cash tokens, if that makes any sense, that can access these digital currencies, which will, will provide a niche for private mints going into the future. But enough thinking about the future. We should start thinking about the past. Jeff, what was going on this week in history? That was a delightful segue. So we are going we, we are going to look at June sixth, which is kind of a little bit ahead of when this podcast drops, but that's just yeah, the it's, way it's, things it's work. close enough. It's close, it's enough. close enough. Good enough for uh, government work, right? So June sixth, we're going back to nineteen forty two, World War Two. What happened on June sixth? Well, that was when the Bureau of Engraving and Printing began printing series nineteen thirty four five dollar Hawaiian emergency notes. Collectors know many, most I would say, know about the overprint notes of uh, ones, five, ten, twenty dollars that were overprinted with the word Hawaii on both sides of the note, uh, small on the face, large on the back. Of course, this was done so that those engaged in operational combat in the Pacific, were they to be captured, were the money to be captured, it could just be you know, sort of flushed from the system. All of a sudden, the government would say, "Yeah, that's that's no good anymore. We're not uh, we're not using it." And so, it had an operational function in wartime. And because of that, and because of its smaller print run, they're avidly collected. Even as I was looking up, trying to match up the make sure the dates were right and all that, I was thinking, you know, how nice it would be to have just a match set of the the different denominations of that. It's very popular because of its service in war and its tangible connection. So that's what was happening on June 6th, 1942. Oh, very interesting. I have a couple of Hawaii overprint notes in my collection. Interesting to have that little piece of their origin story. So for this week in Corn World history, we're taking a look at a relatively recent issue from 2007. We picked 2007 as an acknowledgement of Dan Carr's acquisition of a coining press. He, he finally acquired one and sort of moved the Moonlight Mint into its current phase in 2007. So we felt that it was an appropriate year for this show, since we have Dan Carr's interview later. So, Jeff, what were some of the big headlines in Coin World on June of 2007? So the thing that jumps out at me was on the front page, and that's not why it jumps out. I mean, I, it, that's part of why. But the Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee and the Commission of Fine Arts were reviewing designs for the 2008 Bald Eagle program, which it seems like it was just a few years ago, but no, that was 12 years ago that the coins were released. That's one of the things that CoinWorld does well. Paul Jilks has done remarkably well in his time on staff is sharing news of potential designs, the debates about designs that occur in these two bodies, these deliberative bodies, and showing some of the designs that weren't select were rejected and explaining why they weren't favored by the designs. And of course, those recommendations 
go get kicked up to the secretary of the treasury that has to be signed off before the mint will then strike. It's a collaborative process with the mint involved as well. It was just a reminder of that's how, you know, you look at a, a coin, a commemorative coin that the U.S. Mint strikes. Well, this is part of how it goes on that journey. And we've been fortunate to talk in the podcast before with Heidi Wastwit, who was a CCAC member, Dennis Tucker, who was and is a CCAC member, to get a look behind the curtain, if you will, of what goes on for those designs to be selected. Now, one other thing that uh, there's two stories that a couple pages into the issue, which are also of note, because it, this is a story that just will not end seemingly, certainly in the uh, 16 plus years I've been at CoinWorld. You go to page four of that issue, the Langboard family, does that sound familiar? The Langboard family filed a motion over the 10 gold double eagles from 1933. This is like the Sherry Lewis bit, the song that never ends. It goes on and on, my friends. The litigation, actually, it is finally over, but you never know. There's probably another one of those 33 double eagles out there somewhere that will pop up eventually. We don't know. There's lots of rumors. But the Langbord family had their 10 that their dad purportedly got from the Mint during a very small window when you could go and exchange good money for new money. This story involves uh, or highlights one tiny step on that journey, which ended up uh, the government got the coins. And uh, after the family said, here, are these real? And the government said, haha, we're keeping them. Thank you. And uh, some of those have been on display. I believe they were on display at the ANA. So it's just one of those threads that runs through uh, the hobby the last, you know, really 20 plus years. And so that's what jumped out at me. I know you always like to see what the readers are talking about. What were they talking about in that issue? I do love reader letters. So letters to the editor page, Jeff, your name actually comes up on the letters oh, no. to the editor page from this issue. Um Crap. <laughs> no, Jeff, it was it was glowingly positive in a uh, marked departure from the norm. Whoa! Um, <laughs> no, nah, I kid. Um, so the reason your name came up, Jeff, was uh, your Beginner's Workshop article that was published on uh, May 21st of 2007. Oh, I remember that well. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> anyway. I, I, have, I have no doubt that you do. Um, to clue the readers in, Jeff wrote a beginner's workshop column, which is sort of a forebear to the back to basics column, which I write many of, I, not all of them. Currently, I think yes. I think Paul wrote the one that's appearing in the an upcoming monthly, but generally I, I write a lot of them. This was sort of a forebear uh, to that, you know, giving people, particularly inexperienced collectors, pointers about navigating and understanding different aspects of the hobby. So you wrote, Jeff, I, I'm, I'm reminding you of your own of your own work here. Jeff wrote about selling coins on eBay, how to use the online platform eBay to make a buck or two selling other bucks or two. The first column is entitled Do Your Homework, and it reads, The Beginner's Workshop article published in CoinWorld's May 21st issue, while factual, requires cautions about the eBay environment. I've been selling coins on eBay for about two years, and I do believe that new sellers need to do more homework, in quotes, before they try to sell on eBay. My experience is that the system is in a constant state of flux, requiring me to expend considerable time adapting to changing eBay policies and software. The more things change, the more they stay the same. I suggest that any new seller visiting the eBay boards and read the thread using the new sell form 
a manual March update on the seller form. It appears this new program is extremely sensitive to computer configuration and requires a manual that's about 25 printed pages. I would also suggest that they scan the last series of posts to the feedback on the new sell your item form thread on the same form. If they still decide to sell on eBay, they will do so understanding the difficulties of listing items for sale. From Owen F. Devlin, the address was withheld. So... Evidently, Jeff, your column was helpful, but this particular reader felt that there were complications in his selling process that he wanted to alert people to. Well, um, and, and I would say you always want to leave them wanting more. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. We do have space limitations, except, you know, letter to the editor, somebody can talk about that. So what else, What was the other – I thought you said positive. <laughs> there, there were two. No, no. The other one entitled Safer eBay reads, I enjoyed Jeff Stark's – beginner's workshop series about buying and selling coins on ebay in the may 14th and 21st issues in coin world i gather you talked about ebay more than once well yeah we the first week was how to buy and the second week was how to sell you know so you engage in both sides of the prophecy yeah that's a very sensible way to organize those so i would like to add a few details one I found that eBay is taking a much more active position against dishonest sellers. I benefited from this last year when I bought a 1940. Ah! <laughs> sorry, <laughs> yeah, right. sorry, that doesn't hold up to to now. But anyway, no, no, this is this was it's 2007, Jeff. It was a simpler time. Um, <laughs> I benefited from this last year when I bought a 1914D Lincoln set that turned out to be a modified 1944D, and I found eBay very active in helping me pursue the seller to correct this wrong. Two eBay has just added, as of May 2007, again, we're getting a snapshot of what eBay looked like in the past, a very helpful multiple-step feedback rating system for sellers. Now, buyers can rate sellers in four areas of the sale, item description, communication, shipping, etc. List the fourth one. At five levels, ranging from very unhappy to very happy. Three. I have found that when it comes to buying raw, uncertified coins, no matter how good the photos are on, e on an eBay bid listing, it is best to assume that the coin is one level below the listed grade unless you know the seller well. That's very good advice. That's, that's a very good assumption in general if you're buying coins without being able to hold them in your hand. Some listings, particularly those made by experienced numismatists, will often note things like cleaning or forms of damage that might not be obvious to an untrained eye. So that's worth considering. And of course, today, the policies of eBay today, which were enacted, I don't know when in this 13 year span, but only certain grading firms can you list as being slabbed and then list the, the grade in the title. So, I mean, there's right. that has been addressed at, at some level. So the letter concludes on a note that I think continues to ring true today. Photos cannot duplicate the three-dimensional benefits of looking at a coin up close, and many sellers seem to be optimistic in their grading. More often than not, I've benefited from assuming that a coin in a bid listed as extremely fine is really very fine, a low mint state coin is best assumed as a high about uncirculated, and an MS-66 as an MS-64, MS-63, etc. The letter was sent from Charles K. Pru, spelled P-R-U-G-H, if anyone knows how to pronounce that better than I just did. I will happily be corrected, from Lake Worth, Florida. So these columns caught my eye, A, because they had your name on them, Jeff, and they, they talked about uh, columns that you wrote that these people evidently found helpful and had their own thoughts about, which is what a letter to the editor page exists as a forum to provide, is reader responses to published content. But I also find it interesting because it provides an interesting snapshot of eBay, not in its infancy, it had been around for a while, 
by 2007, but it provides a snapshot oh, of a very gosh, different yeah. moment in eBay's history. And some of the reflections, Jeff, one of the, the themes we always mention when we review uh, reader letters is the more things change, the more they stay the same. The comment about the benefits of holding a coin in hand and being able to assess it for yourself using your own eyes and your own magnification and your own equipment over buying it site relatively unseen on the internet, even if there are included photos, obviously photos can be manipulated in different ways. The obvious benefits of being able to verify for yourself grade, condition, and all of the other sort of attendant qualities of a, of a decent collector coin, that's important to remember today, that if you're going to buy coins on the internet, you should generally you know, assume that grades could be inflated or that a coin might have some kind of problems that a seller doesn't list. So yeah. I found those columns interesting, both in their reference to your work and as a snapshot of eBay history in 2007. There was one last letter that did stand out to me. It's a very brief one, but it speaks to something interesting. And Jeff and I were talking about this letter uh, just before we started recording this podcast. And it's called Award Outrage. A reader named Hilda W. Prince would like to let Coin World know about her outrage that the surviving Tuskegee Airmen or family members of deceased airmen did not receive gold medals or at the very least silver medals. This is from New York City. What Miss Prince was referring to is the fact that Tuskegee Airmen were awarded the Congressional Gold Medal and that a number of airmen and their families attended the medals launch ceremony. And apparently they were not given gold or silver medals, but rather the bronze duplicates that are made available to all collectors on the Mint's website. So I found that interesting just to the extent that there was no effort made to have the medals awarded to the airmen and their families. No effort was made to make those in any way distinct from the duplicates of medals that would be made available. I don't know. I mean, you know, to me, and I said this earlier, I think the airmen and their families should have received a silver version so that I understand you're not going to give a gold version to all these recipients. That would be um, pretty expensive. It would. And, and, you know, some would argue that there's an understandable cost to this program and selling bronze duplicates through the mint is a way to recoup some of those costs. And some of these costs are inherent in you know, determining what a nation values and appreciates. That being said, you can make a much smarter argument for a silver version as opposed to the bronze version. You or I can, I believe, still order that from the mint now. The three-inch bronze, they cost like $40. So if they did something, and I don't know, if they inscribed the edge of the medal with the recipient's name, then you can at least have a provenance. You can There's the reflected value, if you will, of, of the fact that this can be tied to a specific recipient or recipient family. But even then, you know, a bronze version of something that that bronze medal cost $10 or so. I don't know what the cost is, but it was infinitesimal to what we know the sacrifice of these men were. And the purpose and process of a national medal like that is to venerate people and participants. That just doesn't seem to match the seriousness of the event and the times being honored, but I certainly understand why that happened. And Miss Prince was a longtime writer. I don't recall seeing her name in quite a while, but she was not shy about sharing her opinion with us on the letters page. That's a quality that I certainly appreciate, someone's willingness to share their views. And I agree with you that the failure on the part of the Mint to distinguish the material that they gave out to the airmen and their families in any way from the material available to the general public does not necessarily do justice to their service and sacrifice. Well, again, I don't know if there is. 
So don't right, don't right. take my word for it. But right, I'm saying right. if there wasn't a difference, that would be unfortunate and problematic. But it is what it is. So I appreciate the chance to hear what readers are saying back then. But let's look at what a listener is saying today. We received a letter this morning as we record this from a Timothy Fallon that says, while reading my weekly and monthly editions of Coin World magazine, I noticed many of the same contributors, such as you and Chris, William Gibbs, Steve Roach, and the like. I would find it interesting to know a little about these writers, their backgrounds, numismatic interests, etc., would give us an understanding of where they are coming from. Perhaps others would be interested in even a short five-minute interview or bio. It's just a thought. Thanks for taking the time to read this email, and I'm loving the podcast. Stay safe and keep collecting. Hey, echoing our comments, uh, Timothy Fallon, no location given, but we thank you, uh, Mr. Fallon. As I've explained in a response, Chris and I do delve into our personal story. You know if you've listened to more than a few of these that I'm from the St. Louis area, that Chris is from Boston. We'll share some of that but the issue, the magazine or the podcast, we're talking about the coins. We're not talking about and the people that collect them, not the people that are telling you the story about them. But we'll be glad to do that a little bit more, I think. I certainly can speak for myself. That was why uh, a story I wrote a couple weeks ago was especially fun for me. It was the 52nd anniversary, which, okay, that's an odd anniversary, but the, it aligned right with the publication date of the magazine. And it was something I wanted to write about, the 52nd anniversary of the ceremony that opened the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, my hometown. I was able to pull out a bunch of items that show the arch and talk about the history of its creation and the designer and put together a nice little fun little two-page story. So that was a passion project. And you got to see a little bit of, uh, you know, you recognize where I'm from and, and what interests me. So that was a fun listener letter. I would point out to any interested listeners, I would not only echo Jeff's comments that we have, the Jeff and I have both talked about our respective numismatic histories on the podcast in previous episodes. We have interviewed Paul Jilks, actually. we um, I can't remember which episode it was quite a while, months and months ago. So you're going to have to dig back through the archive of podcasts a little bit to find it. But we did interview Paul Jilks and we talked to him about his work as a journalist before Coin World, his move to Coin World in 1988, and some of the big stories that he's covered uh, since then. We dove into his collecting interests a little bit. He's a frequent concert goer, a number of interesting details there. So I would direct people to that. I would love to have Bill or Steve on the podcast. I think yeah. that both of them would have a lot of interesting stories to share. So that would be a fun way to delve into their bios a little bit. And we have had the retired Coin World editor, Beth Deicher, longtime editor on the podcast as well. So we will take occasion to do more of that discussion, and, and we have already, but uh, we do thank you for listening. And maybe you go back and check out some of those earlier episodes if you've missed them, if you came on board late. You mentioned Paul joining the staff in 1988. Let's go to 1988, though, and pull something off my bookshelf, shall we? Sounds good. Jeff, I was actually about to ask. We've been reading... 2007 edition of Coin World and some reader letters. We've read uh, a listener letter. I want to know what you're reading, Jeff. What jumped out at me was not wholly a numismatic book, but it is appropriate, totally appropriate. The book that caught my eye recently is Story of an American Tragedy, Survivor's Accounts of the Sinking of the Steamship Central America. Now, collectors may recall that this was a a ship that plied the waters had all sorts of gold on it when it sank in the hurricane in 1857. 
it was discovered in the 1980s by Tommy Thompson out of uh, Columbus, the Columbus America Discovery Group. The book was actually published by that organization. And what they did was they provided uh, historical sketches of people who survived the wreck. They have firsthand accounts from these folks that uh, appeared in all sorts of contemporary news reporting. I couldn't help but think as I read these, and I, I read these in my mind, like I imagine it, Ken Burns would, would have it say in a, in a documentary, one letter in particular, Mr. Ashby told Captain Burt that Captain Herndon had instructed him to state to him fully the condition of the steamer and her passenger and get him to come as close to where the steamer lay as possible and give him the use of his boats and crew in rescuing the passengers. Captain Burt expressed his desire and intent to do all he could, but not only was his small boat, he only had one, unseaworthy, but the brig was disabled. An attempt was made by the captain of the brig to bring her nearer the Central America. Alonzo C. Monson from the New York Herald, September 27th, 1857. I couldn't help but have that sort of Ken Burns feeling, and there's a fiddle or a violin in the background, if you will. You've got these plaintive wails. I badly want you to do a numismatic one-man show now. (laughs) I want you to narrate famous tracks from numismatic history or famous numismatists over, like you said, a somber fiddle. That would be also... Great podcast episode title, Somber Fiddle. Let me pick up my uh, 2018 Red Book that's right here on the shelf next to me and turn to page 70, New Jersey. On June 1, 1786, the New Jersey General <laughs> Assembly granted to Thomas Goadsby. <laughs> anyway. that, that, that can be a spinoff podcast. It'll just be it'll be the Jeff Stark show. Stark reality. Anyway, Stark um, surreality. surreality. <laughs> well, so. these days, that's uh, that's certainly a fair comment. So anyway. Thanks for sharing that, Jeff, sharing what you're reading. I hope that you've been thinking about the trivia question that I asked you last week. I have. I happen to know the answer. Will you ask it again for the listeners? I certainly will. So we decided to change it up last week, and I decided to ask Jeff a trivia question because Jeff tests my numismatic knowledge all the time, and I felt it was only fair that we test the test giver. So the question that I asked It was based on our interview with Jeff Shevlin last week. He's an expert on so-called dollars, so our question appropriately dealt with so-called dollars. So there were two so-called dollars that were struck for the opening of two different U.S. mint facilities. For which mints were they struck, and when were they struck? Okay, so the dirty little secret is that I came up with the question. Um, Jeff, they're going to see that we're not actually wizards. So uh, all I had to do was flip through the so-called dollar book and go, wait a minute. I think there's a connection in a couple of these that I can draw out a question. That actually so was I, a really good question. Uh, thank you. And so what uh, what we're talking about, and I don't have the book in front of me now, so I can't give you the HK numbers, but uh, when the Denver Mint opened in 1905, there was a special striking medal for that event. That's classified as a so-called dollar. And guess what? When the Manila Mint, nobody remembers that unless you're a specialist in Philippine stuff, right? I mean, I think we had a trivia question, something to the effect of what was the only mint outside of the United States yes. that the United States mint ran or something. Yes, Some version yes. of that question. So, so, but, but it, it's oft overlooked. You think about the eight mint facilities, Dahlonega, New Orleans, Denver, Philadelphia, you know, on San Francisco and, and Denver and so forth. Uh, you often don't 
people don't include that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, this was under U.S. administration, 1920. The piece that was issued then was a so-called Wilson dollar. There were there's some in several metals. In gold, it's uh, extremely rare. And I think one of those came up at auction in the last five or 10 years, commanded quite a sum. The silver ones are, are more affordable, more attainable. Uh, and there may be, I think, a bronze one. But it was interesting to see that here's a U.S. mint-related object that really aligned with our interview last week. And then, hey, you know, it's a fun little trivia question to connect the two. That is the answer. I know for certain. So because Dan Carr is in Colorado and I'm, I'm going to the novice level one, even though um, that's always a good baseline for me. I don't like yes, no questions, but this is a yes, no question. So I have a 50, 50 shot even better. Correct. I would say, you know, we generally pull from the Coin World Trivia game that came out in the mid 80s. This is from that game. The question is, don't answer it now. I'll I'll answer it next week. I might just blurt it out. Did the Denver Mint strike gold coins in the 19th century? So if you were just listening, you may now feel emboldened that you know the answer you're just listening now you definitely know the answer and it's a good question though you know i feel like most many of our listeners will will probably get it if they know uh basic mint history so while you are all pondering whether you're going to say yes or no to that please enjoy our interview with dan carr Chris and I are delighted today to be joined by Daniel Carr, who you may know for his designs for circulating quarters in the United States, but Dan also is known for his private mint work through the Moonlight Mint. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dan. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Our pleasure. We want to really explore your varied and fascinating story as it relates to the hobby, particularly from the design and production side. Now, you run the Moonlight Mint. You are out in Colorado. Can you talk about how your firm got started and, and your background in the industry? Okay. Well, it's basically a combination of a few different things. I always liked coins, uh, collected coins as a teenager back in the 1970s. I also liked doing artwork, doing you know, various drawing, painting, that sort of thing. And I got a degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Colorado. So you put those three things together, uh, coin collecting, artwork, and mechanical engineering. The logical choice is minting, and that's what I do. Cool. And so you're a dyed-in-the-wool collector from the word go. When did you get into the design process, though? Because that was uh, had to be in the 1997-98 range, right? Well, yes. I mean, I mean, the very first coin I ever designed was actually in the late 1980s. There was a time in the late 1980s when there was some talk about making a dollar coin again because they'd finally run out of the Susan B. Anthony dollars or almost run out of the ones they had stockpiled from, you know, 1979 and 1980. And then the late 1980s, there was some talk about making a dollar coin again. And I did a drawing of a, of an astronaut dollar coin. And and that was the first one I ever did, although nothing ever really happened with that and nothing happened with the dollar coin at that time either. It wasn't until uh, roughly 10 years later that the dollar coin push came up again and something actually happened. When did you get into the machine side of things and the computer-aided drafting side of things, computer-aided design? Well, I worked at a company. My regular day job for a number of years was doing uh, software for scientific and engineering applications. So I, I, I wrote software, custom software programs for all sorts of applications, but mostly image processing 
type things like satellite imagery and, and things like that. But also there were sometimes, you know, three-dimensional geometry and so on that would come into play with that. At one point, I, I just realized, you know, I, I know all the, all the things I would need to do to write a sculpting program so that I could sculpt relief surfaces by hand, sort of, but in a digital manner. Of course, typical coin nowadays is, uh, may start off as a sculpt in clay and or plaster and then uh, put on a reduction lathe to make a, a, a die from that. Um, what I started doing was realizing that I can make a program that's kind of like digital clay in a relief modeling sense, and I can basically push digital clay around with a mouse. And that's how my sculpting actually started. It's funny, I never really did sculpting the old-fashioned way where you carve something or sculpted in clay or plaster, uh, except I did that once at uh, the ANA summer seminar one year. But other than that, I always uh, I started from the beginning doing all my designs digitally, which has, of course, huge advantages of being able to reuse the data in different ways, like a, one element of a coin design or metal design could be extracted and used again in a different item later on. So, And then it's the ease of being able to scale things, rotate things, move them around within your circle or whatever shape you're working in. Um, so there's a lot of advantages to doing it digitally. Talk about how you got involved in designing state quarters, because that was really, I think, the time when you came to be noticed by the numismatic community. Sure. That was my first big break in the industry, sort of like every actor or actress wants, you know, they're always looking for their first big break to get in into the big time. And that was sort of my first big break. So what happened there was the talk started coming up again about making a dollar coin. And this was around 1998. And... I still thought that an Apollo astronaut, you know, like that iconic photograph of Buzz Aldrin standing on the moon, something like that, make a nice dollar coin. So I came up with a design for that. It was actually published in Coin World. In fact, I got on the cover twice. I did the initial version. I don't remember what year it was, but it was April. It might have been 1998, I think it was. And then uh, a couple weeks later, I had a revised version that was on the front cover of Coin World again. So there seemed to be some interest in that design that I had done, but the edict came down from the government that the new dollar coin is going to have a woman on it. I said, well, there's nothing wrong with that, except that my astronaut design isn't going to qualify for that. So I came up with an idea of Bessie Coleman, who was an early American aviation pioneer. And there was a committee meeting being held at the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank. And the committee chair was Philip Deal of uh, U.S. Mint director and uh, Congressman uh, Castle from Delaware and some other folks who were there at this meeting. And, and this meeting was the one that where they were going to decide what woman was going to be on the new coin. I was able to apply to be one of the presenters at that, and I was accepted. So I went out and I made a short presentation for Bessie Coleman. And at one point, Bessie Coleman idea was actually second place in the voting behind Sacagawea. But as we know, Sacagawea was the choice. So the committee eventually, in the end, recommended Sacagawea for the new coin. And they also recommended that the Mint hold a limited invitation-only design competition for that coin. And I thought, well, maybe I'll, you know, I would get invited for that. Well, I didn't get invited, even though I tried. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't really expect to be the one designing the coin, but I just kind of wanted to be able to, you know, give it a shot. I didn't get in, but I, I wrote my congressman, who had been Nighthorse Campbell of Colorado. He was one of the only congressmen I've ever dealt with that actually replied to any request that I sent. But 
he actually wrote a letter on my behalf to the Treasury Department, and so I actually got in on this design competition to go to Sackey's Way Dollar. Although I was not paid for my entries like everyone else was, I did get in. And now there were two artists that sort of crashed the party and got in. I was one of the two that was actually allowed into the competition, even though I wasn't originally invited. So you know, I was lucky in that respect. You know, it was not something that was very commonplace. And eventually I was at one point one of seven finalists for the reverse of the Sackey's Way Dollar. But in the end, they went with a design from Thomas D. Rogers, a U.S. Mint employee. Yeah. So that was a, a neat thing. I had my design was on, you know, shown in some newspapers and that sort of thing. And the eagle I had soaring in front of the sun. So anyway, finally leading up to answering your question, it was a few months later. And it was, I think it was 1999 by this point, And the U.S. Mint, I think they were a little bit behind schedule on their work for getting ready for the 2001 state quarters because they have to start these things, you know, a year and a half or so or more ahead of time. So what the Mint went and did, and they didn't tell anybody outside the world that they were doing this, is that they were inviting people to submit designs for the five 2001 state quarters. And I was one of those people. I was fortunate to be that. And I was invited because what I found out was the Mint decided to invite people who were finalists in the Sackage Way a Dollar competition. So that's how I got in to be invited for that. So basically what I was in was a pilot program for the Artistic Infusion Program, or the AIP. So I was in their pilot program for that. I got the invitation to do the five designs for the 2001 state quarters. It was requested that you know the people in this competition do one design for each of the five coins. I got that invitation, I think it was in early October, and the designs were due at the end of November. So it really didn't give that much time. And in between that, I had a business trip, I had major surgery, there was Halloween, there was Thanksgiving, all these things. So it came down to, like, basically I had one weekend to do all five wow. designs. And I decided, well, I had kind of taken my sculpting program all apart because I was rebuilding it in software. And I didn't really feel like I should use that. So I just kind of did these designs the old-fashioned way where I just did drawings. So I did the drawings of four of the states. And then it, it got to be Sunday night, and I, had, and I was supposed to send the designs, you know, Monday morning by express mail, whatever. And... It was Sunday night, and I still had one to do, and it was New York. And the artists invited in, into this competition were each, we were given a list of themes, three to five themes, suggested themes for each state. And I was tired, and it was Sunday night, and I looked at the list for New York, and I just picked the easiest thing on the list. And, and they were kind of specific. So it said, you know, Statue of Liberty with a state outline and the legend Gateway to Freedom. So I thought, mm, that's pretty easy. I'm tired. I've got to get this done. So I'll just go with that. So in a sense, I really, all I did on that one was arrange the furniture that they had already picked out. <laughs> so I did that drawing, and the next morning I sent off my five Eventually, as you know, I ended up winning two in New York and Rhode Island. I think I kind of won the New York one by default. I don't think the committee could agree on some of the other ones. And there were some nice ones in there, like Erie Canal ones and whatnot. So they kind of decided to pick mine by default because it was kind of pretty generic and you know didn't focus on any one particular part of the state. But they did decide to add the Erie Canal uh, pathway through New York State in the state outline part of it, which I thought was made sense. So I went ahead and did a drawing with that in it, but they also did their own drawing, the, they being the mint. So that's how the New York one came to be. The Rhode Island one, I appreciate that one a lot more because that was 
one that where where the suggested theme was a lot more open to artistic interpretation. It basically just said an ocean vist with a ship or ships. And so I did initial drawing with that, with a sailboat, and I, it was sort of my idea to put the uh, Narragansett Pell suspension bridge across the background there, as if the ship was heading home back into port there. I did get a letter from the Mint about that one, and they said that they were interested in that design, but they wanted a different ship on there, and they sent me some information from the Harrisoft Marine Museum in Rhode Island about the ship called the Reliance, which won the America's Cup races in 1903, and it was built in Rhode Island. So, of course, that made perfect sense. So I did another drawing with that particular ship on it, and I had to envision what it would look like from a different angle because I didn't have any photographs of it from the back. So I kind of had to envision that, and then I made that drawing and sent it in, and that was, of course, what was chosen for the Artistic interpretation. Right. (laughs) You made an artistic interpretation. So you use that, I guess, as sort of a springboard to private commissions and then your own stuff, right? I mean, that was, that's at least the way I remember the um, chronology. Well, yes. Uh, So having one, you know, the two state quarters, uh, initially though, the Mint, uh, the Mint didn't want to tell anybody about this pilot program for the artistic infusion program. They didn't tell anyone. And it was only you folks there at CoinWorld that eventually started digging you know, into this and probing the Mint, and eventually the Mint admitted that there were some people from outside the Mint that did design some of the 2001 state quarters, and then that, that I had done two of the designs, essentially. That never would have gotten out if it wasn't for, you know, the media being being uh, coin world, you know, trying to prod the mint and, you know, say, hey, what's, you know, what's what happened with these? And so that that story finally got out. I'm still not listed on the mint website as the designer or anything for those those two coins. It was just a weird, weird thing. Just like Paul Jackson isn't credited for the Missouri State Quarter because he designed it, but he didn't sculpt it. That was, uh, you know, somebody else, I think Donna Weaver or something. So that the way that whole program was handled early on they it changed, changed yeah. it they changed yes. it uh, midstream and then artists had to fight for their own recognition right. before then and i remember that feud that paul jackson he had with the mint over that design and that was quite a thing and at the same time that was going on of course this was 2001 that that, that was going on so that was a couple of years later after, after i had already done two state quarters well of course the mint changed the way submissions worked and so on and a couple of years later, in 2001, a friend of mine, at the, I still worked at my regular day job in my office, mate, he was from Maine and his parents lived in Maine. So we decided, hey, let's do a Maine state quarter design. And the state of Maine held a design competition for their quarter. But people didn't really realize at the time that no matter what design they came up with, the U.S. Mint was never going to consider their graphic. Yeah, they only wanted narratives. <laughs> Correct. And so... I came up with this design, and it was in in all the main papers, and it was the one. It won. It, it, it was the one that the state of Maine picked and said, "We want this for our state quarter." Well, the Mint wouldn't let them have it like that. The Mint would say, "Well, we have to have our artists do it." Well, then the Mint came back with their drawing of it, and there was a a feud between Maine and the Treasury Department over that because the people in Maine didn't like the Mint's one, but the Mint said, "We're the ones who get to decide," and so this is what it's going to be. So, but that whole feud with Maine and the and the Treasury Department over the main state quarter was sort of overshadowed because at the same time that was happening and I stayed completely out of it. I didn't, I didn't want to get into, you know, into that feud, but um, at the same time, all that was happening was when the Paul Jackson, and the Missouri state quarter thing was happening. And he, he made a big deal out of that. So that oh, was, yeah. like, <laughs> that was a lot that kind of overshadowed the main situation, but you're no stranger to controversy regarding coin design. I mean, one of the uh, earliest 
private commissions that I'm aware of, and maybe you can correct me, but was the uh, Cook Islands 9-11 Freedom Tower design that unfortunately, uh, for other reasons, got caught up in you know media coverage and, and all that. Right. What, can you walk us through your involvement in that and what taste was left in your mouth from that? So uh, sort of answer that and your other your previous question. So after the main state quarter, this is 2001, and then getting into 2002, 2003 timeframe, I, I did a few other state quarters. And, and by now I was back to using my software, my digital sculpting software again, because I'd put it back together again in, in a better way. And and I was using it to create designs. I still didn't have any way to make anything physical out of my digital representations. I can make a virtual digital representation of the design. I still didn't have any way to make a physical model of that, not yet anyway. But I was contacted by this National Collector's Mint and asked if I'd be interested in doing the graphic artwork for a Freedom Tower Silver Dollar. And so I looked into it and it was, I mean, it was presented to me as a rather, you know, benign thing. They wanted to basically commemorate the groundbreaking for the new Freedom Tower. Yeah. And I think this was 2004 is when it was. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, I did a graphic design for both sides of that. That was my extent of it. Now they wanted to use my name as like the, you know, uh, the my signature on the little the certificates that came with the coins and said, you know, this is a chief engraver or whatever. I said, well, that's that's okay, you know, sir. I mean, you know, I mean they paid reasonably well and it was kind of job that I was sort of looking for. But then when I started seeing their marketing for it, it seemed like, well, this is a little uh, this is a little hokey there, the way they're passing it off as a government-issue legal tender silver dollar. Most of them were plated with silver. Not all of them. Some of them were solid silver. They would be marked on the edge if they were. But a lot of them were plated, and the, the ads were a little bit misleading. Um, so I kind of quit doing anything with them. But uh, but I, as far as like the, the sculpting, the engraving, and the stamping, I believe all of that was done by Sunshine Mint in Idaho. But the Freedom Tower, the initial one, was not issued through the Cook Islands. It was actually issued through the Northern Mariana Islands. Oh, okay. A, I forgot that protectorate. Part. Yeah, it's a protectorate of the United States. What this National Collector's Mint had done is they got in contact with an official from the Northern Mariana Islands and said, well, let's do a deal where we make a, a legal tender Northern Mariana Islands coins and we'll pay you know Northern Mariana Islands royalties for this. I mean, the coin is not going to circulate. It won't have anything to do physically with Northern Mariana Islands, except saying that it's a Northern Mariana Islands dollar on it. And so this official agreed. Well, they weren't allowed to do that because by <laughs> law, they are only allowed to use U.S. dollars as their currency because they're a protectorate of the United States. So this little um, logo of the Northern Mariana Islands was added to the Freedom Tower design after I was done with it. And they made these coins. Well, they got into big trouble because that official was basically, I guess, corrupt or whatever. I mean, they took money for this when they shouldn't have been. The National Collectors Mint got in, got in trouble and got fined for this this whole thing. On uh, the cover story, so to speak, was that it was they were you know trying to take advantage of the 9/11 tragedy and all this, and their marketing was deceptive and all that. And and some of that, I guess, you could say is true, but. The real reason it wasn't published so much, I think, was because it was a currency thing, because they were trying to portray this thing as a government-issue legal tender dollar to the Northern Mariana Islands, but it could not have been because Northern Mariana Islands is not allowed to do anything like that. So what then happened was that the 2004 issue was, it was out there in all the newspaper ads and everything, and then they were National Collectors Mint was ordered to stop marketing and selling those and issue a refund if people wanted it. So that's what happened there. And then kind of quietly, 
in 2005, the next year, they went on and they associated with the Cook Islands instead. And Cook Islands can issue their own currency. And they made a deal with Cook Islands to put make it a legal tender Cook Islands dollar and sell it as a legal tender government issue dollar in that manner. And they did. And it's actually listed in, in the Crowds Coin World catalog, the Cook Islands version. What most people don't realize is that these are been minted with 2005 dates, but also all the way up through 2010. So they made several years of these Freedom Tower silver dollars through the Cook Islands, and nobody complained. But it was only that first one that they had a big marketing blitz for that people really complained and got in trouble for. So, But that wasn't the extent of my uh, relationship was with that coin, was just doing the graphic artwork at the very beginning. You also created a token for a currency that many of our listeners might not be familiar with, the Amero. In 2012, I believe, you designed a piece to raise awareness of the concept of the Amero, a sort of right. a currency is sort of like the euro that might serve the US, um, Mexico and Canada. Could you talk yes. a little bit about your design and how that idea kind of percolated in your head and why you wanted to raise awareness for it? Sure. So this would have been the time frame on this would have been 2007. And oh, okay. That was the first Amero coin that I did was 2007. So early in 2007, uh, by this time uh, in my development of my mint or whatever, I didn't have an actual coin press yet, but I had acquired what's called a CNC milling engraving machine. So it's computer numeric control. That's what CNC stands for, milling engraving machine, where I could take a digital representation that I sculpted in my software and output a whole bunch of coordinates. I'd make a file that would have literally millions of coordinate points in it. And that file, those coordinates in three dimensions, X, Y, and Z, would tell the cutting bit where to move in 3D space. And so what I could do is I, at first I started off cutting like eight inch diameter acrylic, hard black acrylic model. So I would cut an eight inch diameter model of the coin. And then I would send that off to a place in South Dakota or Los Angeles or wherever that had a reduction lathe and they would put that my model on the reduction lathe and make a die and then I would take that die and I would have it sent to one of different private mints to have the pieces actually stamped that was probably around the 2005 time frame that I was doing that mostly maybe 2006 and what I was doing earlier on was I was doing some concept dollars you might be familiar with some of the gallery mint concept dollars from Ron Landis I decided around, I think it was 2004, actually, that, hey, I should mint some of my Sacagawea concept dollars using the design that I submitted in that competition. And while I was doing that, I also made my Bessie Coleman dollar and also my astronaut dollar. So those are some of the first products I actually made were those. And I made those by cutting a acrylic model, having dies made from that model elsewhere, and then having them stamped elsewhere. But then in 2007... Of course, I was looking for an actual coin press, and I did finally acquire uh, my coin press in 2007, late in 2007. But be just before that, in early 2007, I'd been hearing this chatter on the Internet about these government think tanks looking into a potential common currency for North America, mostly Canada, United States, and Mexico, called the Amero. And they went so far as to make a public domain symbol for this currency, which is an A inside of a circle. That would sort of be like the dollar sign version of for the Amero. And at that point, I realized, hmm, this is something that some people don't really know about, and people might want to know about that potential uh, happening. And then I also realized, hey, there's no law that says I can't make Amero-denominated coins. Maybe at some point, if they ever actually came out with that currency, it probably would be against the law to do it. But at the time that they were just first talking about it, I thought, I'm going to do this because I like making unusual 
tokens and things and and i think like a coin collector and i kind of think about what they might like and i thought about oh i could do some you know classical kind of designs liberty designs of various kinds and have fun with it and so that's what i did starting in 2007 and uh it was quite controversial especially when the first coin came out there was a radio talk show person back east i think it was new jersey who was making a railing on about this potential amero thing and someone sent him one of the coins that i had made in 2001 2007 large diameter copper ameros and he had it on his podcast thing or tv show whatever and it was it was a big deal people were just flipping out over the whole thing but i knew that it was just kind of not really a ruse, but I knew that it was unlikely to ever happen. And the coin that he had was the one I made. And well, he was going on about how, you know, billions of these things were being made in secret and they were being shipped to China to, to pay some of our debt to China and this sort of thing. I knew, you know, all that was was not true, but but it was it was quite a quite a controversial thing when it was going on for a while. And so in two thousand seven, two thousand eight Ameros, I mean I made them as novelty items just for people to have one and you know think about it you know if you have one of these coins physically in your hand now you can really start to think what if you know what if this really was a real thing what would it mean for me because if there was a common currency like most things it would probably be good for some people and not good for others and who it's usually going to be good for the people that are in control you know banking and whatnot and maybe not as good for everyone else but the coins were were popular and, and over time the popularity and interest in that kind of waned because you know the, the euro started having problems issues with the different countries wanting to go sort of do their own thing when they weren't allowed to. And so over time, the Amero concept became less and less likely. And, and by, I think, 2018 was the last year that I made any Ameros. And by then, the minages actually had come down quite a bit and, and not as many people were, were interested in it. And it became, for me, just a way to come up with new, you know, fantasy designs for coins more than anything else, more than it trying to make a statement about the economy or anything. So I haven't made any Amero since 2018 at this point. So you mentioned that early on in your experimentation with these Amero coins, you mentioned that you didn't have a minting press. Uh, do you right. have one now? And could you tell us a little bit about, of the story about acquiring it and sort of developing the Moonlight Mint? Sure. As I mentioned, at one point I was making black acrylic models, cutting them myself, and then sending them out to be to have the engraving done, and also then sending those dies somewhere else to have the minting done. At some point, I realized, well, you know, I'm not entirely happy with the results. Sometimes, some of the time, of of having my model made into a die from a reduction lathe, and having someone else do it, you know, and they may not do it exactly the way I want, and so on. So the first step I made towards being a full mint after that was to finally get up the nerve to try cutting steel directly. And once I got used to doing that, then I quit doing the plastic models and went directly from digital to die. And that was uh, 2007 when I started doing that, and I still do that today, of course. So I, so I do a digital representation, sculpt it in 3D for a coin, and then I will go directly from that representation digitally to an actual steel die that's been cut by my milling engraving machine. So for a while there, I was I got to the point where I was making my own steel dies entirely. I mean, everything with a steel die was, was done by me, and then, but I still didn't have a coin press or even a place to put one. So I was sending dies out to different mints. And I tried three different private mints, and I was able to get the product that I wanted from the three, but all three, there were issues. The worst one by far was Northwest Territorial Mint, which was now defunct, and you know, as we know now, they were engaged in some 
shady behavior. But uh, I had one set of dies I had made for a 2006 Denver Mint Centennial piece. And I had them mint some of them, and they were okay. And then I had them send the dies back to me, and then I spent like a day and a half doing very careful selective polishing on the dies because I wanted to do a new version with different die polishing, like not, not a proof polishing, but kind of a some elements would be polished in one way and other elements would be polished a different way to kind of give it a contrast look. So I did all that work and sent the dies back with instructions for them to mint like a hundred more pieces in silver or whatever. And they went and sandblasted my dies without even talking to me about it and wiped out all that polishing work I did and then made the hundred pieces and sent them to me and said, this is no good. And then I complained and they would never reply to me anymore. So it's like, well, I can see where this, this is going. So, so I decided at that point, all right, I'm already doing the hard part. Most private mints, their most difficult issue they have to deal with is they're not really capable of making dyes themselves. They have to hire a contractor or have an expensive in-house employee make the dyes. Uh, certainly some private mints make their own dyes, but it's usually one of their bottlenecks, I guess you could say, or, or one of the more difficult aspects of it. And, and I thought to myself, well, I'm already doing the hardest part of minting, and that's making really good dyes. And so why don't I just go all the way and do the stamping and everything as well? So this was uh, 2007. I started looking around for a coin press. There weren't a lot of options. There were a few, but I could have bought a, a brand new Italian-made press for about $50,000, and it would have the a, around 400 U.S. ton stamping capacity, which is what I was looking for. And so I, I thought about going that route, but then I saw on the Internet, advertised for sale, a used surplus Denver Mint coin press. It was considerably more, the asking price on it was considerably more than the Italian press, but I thought that would be the coolest thing to have a Denver Mint surplus press. For, for one thing, I was born in Denver, not far from the Denver Mint, and I still live in Colorado, so I mean, what better press would there for, be for me to use than a surplus Denver Mint press? So what happened with this press was the Denver Mint had Grabner brand presses, and this was probably around the 2000-2001 time frame where the Denver Mint kind of got out of doing commemorative coins. You know, they were doing commemorative silver dollars and things like that in the, the 1990s, but the last commemorative silver dollar the Denver Mint did was the 2001 Buffalo dollar. After that, they didn't do any commemorative anymore. They, they did those other mints. So the Denver Mint had about a dozen or so of these Grabner presses, and they're vertical acting presses, which means you know the lower die is stationary and the upper die moves vertically up and down to stamp the coin. So the Denver Mint didn't really need to do collector coins anymore, and they wanted to go to higher speed presses, so they, they wanted to switch to these Schuler presses, which are horizontal acting presses, which use gravity to assist the feeding of the coin blanks in there. But these Schuler presses, are, they are so fast. I mean, you look in the little window and watch it, they're a blur. I mean, Yeah, they, like they 700 coins a, a minute, I think. Generally. Yeah, they are fast. I mean, my Grabner press would do 10,000 an hour, but that's nowhere near as fast as those Schuler presses. So what the Denver Mint did was they had a dozen or so of these Grabner presses. They sent all but one of them to San Francisco, which makes sense because if you're doing collector coins, you want to do one at a time, take a tong, drop a blank in there, push the button, stamp the coin grab the tongs, take the coin out, put it in a velvet tray so they never scuff each other. A vertical acting press is what you want. So it made sense to send these Grabner presses to the San Francisco Mint where they could be used. But for some reason, they decided to sell one of the presses at a GSA auction. 
and this was 2001 when the auction occurred. And I was, you know, a long way from even looking at coin presses at that point. I didn't even look at coin presses until 2007. But what happened was a machine tool dealer from Arkansas was at the GSA auction and bought that coin press when their sole purpose for buying it was to resell it at a higher price. Well, they were asking a pretty high price for it. I think they were asking $88,000 for it. I think they, I, I don't know for sure, but somehow I think I figured out they paid $12,000 for it in this auction. So they were looking to make a good profit on it. Their issue, though, their price was pretty high. But the other main issue was uh, after they bought it, they had stored it in an associate's warehouse in Littleton, which is a suburb south of Denver. And this company that they stored it at is a company that, that sometimes does contract work for the U.S. Mint in, in moving big equipment around and that sort of thing. So this fellow from Arkansas, this machine tool dealer, bought the press in 2001, stored it in the warehouse in Littleton, had it advertised on the Internet, but after having it sitting there in this warehouse for six or seven years, he still had it for sale advertised on the internet. So I contacted him and got some information about it. Nothing really happened at, the point, at that point. That was just early 2007 because I didn't have a place to really put it yet. But then later in 2007, I knew I was going to go get some kind of a coin press and do actual minting. So I acquired a, a unit in a in an industrial building where I have the right power requirements and everything, and I could have a mint. Uh, just out of coincidence, uh, the fellow from Arkansas emailed me. Uh, this was about six months after I had first inquired about it. And he offered it to me for half what he was originally asking for it on approval, although I would have to pay to have it transported and set up and everything. So I actually agreed to that deal. I basically hired the company that, that owned the warehouse where it was being stored to, to bring it up to my location, which was you know, about 60 miles, 50 miles away. And uh, we set it up, and then they, they left, and there it was. And I was there in my shop with my press, and it's like, well, okay, now i got to get this thing going. And it had some issues, mostly electrical wiring problems. And I think that's why the Mint sold it, was because some things had been put together wrong with the wiring, and it would never run for them. Once somebody took it apart and put the wiring back together wrong, it was dead in the water. It was never going to run again until that was fixed. And it took me a couple of months uh, not all the time, but, you know, a couple of weeks here, or, I mean, a couple hours a week here, a couple hours a week there, you know, just fiddling around with it, trying to figure that out to get it to work. And while I was doing that, I actually, when I go over to my, my unit there to work on the, the press, a lot of the time it was a treasure hunt because I was looking through every nook and cranny of that press trying to find things. And I did find over 400 blank planchets scattered all through it. And I found some feeding fingers, some stainless steel feeding fingers that had impressions from uh, silver dollar dies like the 1992 Columbus silver dollar and the 1992 White House commemorative silver dollar. So that was pretty neat. But eventually I got the wiring issues figured out and it was a eureka moment when I figured out, oh, well, this is what somebody did. And I put it back together right and started working and uh, other than put oil in it and adjust a few things, that's all I've had to do for the last 13 years that I've been using it. So since uh, late 2007, or mostly 2008 is when I really started making things. So from 2008 on, uh, everything I've made has been stamped by that press. And really that press is what allowed you to expand to such an enormous output. You've done lots of great satirical designs, certainly the Great Recession. There's a series of what I think you call hard times tokens. Yeah, modern uh, hard times. Modern hard times tokens. 
tokens, and they, to me, they're shades of the classic hard times tokens in them. It's something that you've revived here in the recent COVID-19 pandemic and the um, $1,200 stimulus. And in between, you've done, uh, you struck Colorado Mine Gold uh, as a as homage to Clark Gruber and Company, the great Colorado firm. And thankfully for listeners who aren't familiar with you, uh, which is hard to imagine, but we know they're out there. You catalog all of this on the Moonlight Mint website, I believe it is. Right. Do you prefer designing and producing your own material as opposed to doing stuff for other mints? I, I can't think of anything you've done for another mint since in this time, but maybe, you know, uh, can't follow everything. <laughs> I have done quite a few commission works. I, I prefer doing my own thing because, first of all, I think like a coin collector. And the way a lot of these products come out is, I think about what I think would be really neat and I would like to have and collect. And then I go make that. And, you know, it's usually at least moderately successful because thinking like a coin collector and I think what's neat, other people are not always going to agree, but they tend to to like that kind of thing also. So that works out pretty well. But I I do do commission work also. And there is one section on my webpage that's devoted to showing all the different uh, commissioned works that I've done over the years. There's a Hannibal, Missouri Coin Club you've done, a Colorado Coin Club you've done stuff with uh, Jeff Shevlin. There's a lot of stuff you've done in that regard, but no other coins for a a different world uh, issuer, right? I've not done any other legal tender coins. Legal tender, um, the okay. only legal tender coins I did were the New York and Rhode Island state quarters for the U.S. Mint and technically the Cook Islands Freedom Tower. Uh, I just did the graphic art for that is all, but that's a legal tender coin technically. But. Thinking like a collector has led to some very popular but also controversial issues like the uh, 1964 peace dollar design overstruck on a uh, legitimate peace dollar. Mm-hmm. You've, you've taken that approach and, and replicated it with, I believe, 1815 cents and several other album yes. fillers, if you will. Um, right. What's the future of that? Have you come to the end of the road on that or is there there's still new horizons to chart? Oh, there's uh, quite a few more. So, you know, I grew up in Denver and I used to go around all the coin shops in the 1970s and and I still go around to them now and then. But I remember hearing all the stories about the 1964 peace dollar. And personally, my personal opinion is that that there are none. There are none that got out. But I hear all these stories about so-and-so knew somebody who knew somebody who had one or had a picture of one or, you know, got to hold one in their hand or whatever. Well, I don't know. I've never had a first to can account of that from anybody. And so I, I don't think there are any, but I always wanted one. And, and what, what collector doesn't dream of being able to go to a mint and catch a brand new minted silver dollar as it comes off the coin press before it falls into the bin of other coins and gets all dinged up. And yeah. not only that, but do it with a 1964 peace dollar. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? I mean, it was a, it was sort of like a dream come true kind of a thing. And I, I really wanted to do it. And I started thinking about, well, how can I do that, you know, legally and everything? And I looked into first the 64 peace dollar. And, you know, I have government documents that the government states that none were issued. No 1964 peace dollars were issued, which we already all know that. But I started to think, well, you know, if I took a genuine peace dollar and just stamped over it to make it look like a 1964 peace dollar, I mean... It, it was a genuine you know, U.S. Mint legal tender dollar coin, and then I stamp over it to alter it to make it look like something else. I'm not creating a new dollar out of something that wasn't 
a dollar already. Now, I don't claim any legal tender status from a 1964 peace dollars or anything like that, but, but I'm not creating a new dollar or something that looks like a dollar out of something that wasn't already a legal tender dollar. So I had a lot of fun with that, and they were quite popular, and it was a really, I think, a good thing for my mint to do that. And, of course, since then, I have done other fantasy date coins. Some of them have come out better than, than others, but they've all been pretty good. But some of the best quality ones, I think, for some reason, I like the 1933D Mercury Dime that I did. That one was really uh, came out really well. And a lot of it, that had to do with how, how good the engraving came out, which even though I've been doing this for years, sometimes I do better on engraving than, than, than other pieces. But as far as going forward, there's still a lot more to do. I basically have this goal, and I don't know if I'll ever make it, but I want to do a fantasy date typeset of all U.S. coins. And I guess maybe I'm a third of the way, but there's still a lot more to do. And in fact, for example, I recently just came out with a 1978 and 1998 Susan B. Anthony dollars, of all things. Uh, but... If you want to have a complete typeset of U.S. coins, you need a Susan B. Anthony dollar. So I've got two different, you know, fantasy dates. So these are genuine Susan B. Anthony dollars. They were overstamped to make them look the same as a Susan B. Anthony dollar, but now they have a different date on them. And people wonder, well, isn't that even even just doing that illegal? Well, it's it's actually legal to deface money, so long as you're not doing it for fraudulent purposes. So I'm very clear when I when I offer these things that it's a you know it's a fantasy date overstrike made by me, but. But anyway, there's a lot more uh, room to do more things in this area because, like I said, I want to eventually do a complete typeset of U.S. coins. And, and whether or if I'll ever get there or not, I don't know, but I've got quite a few more to do, but I'll be working on it <laughs> over okay. the next few years. Awesome. Well, we will leave that as the last word then, something uh, forward-looking for collectors. And uh, certainly we'll have a link to the website and uh, maybe we can talk again in print or on the podcast for some of these other future projects as they emerge. Uh, we thank you again, Dan, for taking the time today to speak with us. Uh, thank you too. It was, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was, uh, it was a good talk, I think. Thank you so much. And that was our interview with Dan Carr, the private mentor of some renown. And uh, we had a blast talking to Dan. We hope you enjoyed listening to Dan and uh, and hearing about his many projects over the last 10, 15 years, uh, 20 years. If you enjoyed the interview, if you enjoyed the rest of the show, if you've enjoyed any of our previous shows, we ask you this every week. I feel like a bit of a broken record, but it's important to say. Please keep on listening every week and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcast and feel free to write us an email or send us a letter. You might It might get read on the podcast uh, like the one we had today. So please keep on listening. Remember to subscribe. And until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Thanks for the segue, big voice guy. This is Brian again reminding you to sign up for the Coinworld email newsletters. It's free and easy to do. Just click on the link I put in the show notes, choose your topics, and the high-quality content you expect from Coinworld will be on its way shortly. So click on that link to sign up, and thanks for listening to the show.